Crimes and Misdemeanors is the 18th film written and directed by Woody Allen, first released in 1989. It's two stories in one. The first is The Trials of Judah, an eye doctor whose mistress is threatening to destroy his life and the terrible choices he makes. The second is The Trials of Cliff, whose search for meaning and meaningfulness is scuppered at every turn. Together, their stories question justice and faith and the existence of God itself. This is one of Alan's most acclaimed dramas and one of his most acclaimed films in general. It was also made in a period where Alan's complete creative control was at its most prevalent. He reshot around a third of the film and he is still unhappy about the film to this day. Welcome to the Woody Allen Pages podcast from me, the creator of the Woody Allen Pages website. This week, episode one, we look at 1989's Crimes and Misdemeanors. We look at how this film came to be, what I loved and didn't love, and then some fun trivia about the film. Of course, spoilers are everywhere. I remember my father telling me, the eyes of God are on us always. The eyes of God. What a phrase to a young boy. I mean, what were God's eyes like? Unimaginably penetrating, intense eyes, I assumed. And I wonder if it was just a coincidence that I made my specialty ophthalmology. <laughs> the late 80s was one of Alan's most difficult periods. He had just made two back-to-back dramas and neither were particularly successful, 1987's September and 1988's Another Woman. Both films had extensive rewrites, recasting and reshoots. He was notoriously tinkering and revising and making very little concessions to the audience. Alan had also tried to disappear from the public eye around this time. In fact, by this time, Alan hadn't actually appeared in one of his own films since Hannah and Her Sisters in 1986, although he narrated 1987's Radio Days. There are almost no interviews from this period. Alan's acclaim and fame meant that his films marketed themselves, and his deal with Orion Pictures meant that it didn't actually really matter if his films failed or not. He was usually already on to the next film, and Orion was backing on Alan in the long run. Crimes and Misdemeanors was one of the films that would make the flops worth it for Orion. Not only was Alan back on screen, he was also nominally the lead, something he wasn't in Hannah and Her Sisters. But anyone looking for a charming romantic comedy starring one of America's funniest filmmakers would be in for a shock. Now it's funny I use the term answered prayers, you see. I'm a man of science. I've always been a skeptic, but I was raised quite religiously. And while I challenged it, even as a child, some of that feeling must have stuck with me. Crimes and Misdemeanors was not an easy film to make, but it seems around this time Alan was always making things difficult for himself. He was trying to break out of the comedy tag. Sometimes Alan knocks out a script in a couple of weeks and is filming just a couple of months later. This film, however, took a much longer journey. Alan wrote the film whilst on a European holiday with Mia Farrow. He had started on the idea back in New York, but Alan wrote a bulk of the film on various bits of hotel stationery in countries like Sweden and Denmark. By the time he got home, he had a version of the script done. Some photos of that handwritten script was included in the Eric Lacks book, Conversations with Woody Allen. The original idea of the film was written under the working title of Brothers. Having focused on sisterly relationships with Hannah and her sisters, Allen flipped it to be about fraternal relationships. In fact, this film was, in many ways, a reaction to Hannah and her sisters, where Allen felt he was too nice to the characters. Allen, of course, still hates that happy ending that he tacked onto Hannah and her sisters. So this film is the dark mirror of Hannah. No being nice no happy endings. As the working title of Brothers suggested, that first version focused on the character of Judah Rosenthal, 
one of Alan's most interesting male leads. He is having an affair and his mistress has threatened to reveal all. When his brother offers to organise a hired killer, Judah makes a terrible decision. Alan apparently based the brothers on real siblings that knew his occasional writing partner, Marshall Brickman, who co-wrote Annie Hall and Manhattan. Judah appears to be the leading man in charge of his agency, but he can't see his own flaws. He's a weasel, but he's played brilliantly by Martin Landau, who plays it straight. It's really a trick that Alan and Landau pulls off here. Judah is a prick, a grade A prick. He's cheating on his wife and he's taking advantage of the lonely Dolores, played wonderfully by Angelica Houston. Even Landau would ask of Alan, why would anyone want to spend time with this asshole? Yet we follow his journey and he is sort of the hero of the film. We listen to his reasons and we only get one side of the story. We want him to succeed in his goals because we watch films and we are used to wanting the person we spend the most time with getting their goals. But this guy's goal is to kill a woman and get away with it. This really isn't the stuff of mainstream American cinema in the 1980s. The biggest films of 1989 featured Batman, Indiana Jones and Ghostbusters being good guys. Great characters, but good guys. Judah probably seems less groundbreaking now in a post-Sopranos, post-Mad Men and post-Breaking Bad kind of world. But there's more than a little Judah Rosenthal in Tony Soprano, Don Draper and Walter White. It's a human life. You don't think God sees? God is a luxury I can't afford. Now you're talking like your brother Jack. Jack lives in the real world. You live in the kingdom of heaven. I managed to keep free of that real world, but suddenly it's found me. Of course, Judah's story is only part of the story. This film has two narratives that run in parallel, and the other involves Cliff Stern, played by Woody Allen. It's unclear to me whether Cliff's story was in the original version of Brothers. Allen has said over the years that he wished that the film was just the Judah storyline, suggesting a version of Brothers existed without the Cliff story. But Orion Pictures asked for Allen to write a part for himself. Allen has full creative control but wanted to play nice with his studio and agreed. It's not the first time Orion asked this. They asked Alan to consider starring in The Purple Rose of Cairo and his biggest box office hits of the 80s like Hannah and Her Sisters and Broadway Danny Rose were the ones he starred in. So he wrote a whole new storyline for a new character he would play that would explore the same themes from a different angle. It doesn't seem that Alan ever considered the role of Judah for himself. Cliff's story was originally completely different from what we see in the finished film. He was still a documentary maker, but he was making a film about retired vaudeville performers in a retirement home. Mia Farrow's character worked there, and Alan Alder's character has another love interest, played by Daryl Hannah. Alan actually shot and threw out that entire storyline. Sean Young and Mercedes Rule had their scenes cut, and Daryl Hannah remains in just one scene. Alan has never made it clear why he made such a significant change, other than his usual line about the film not working. He also told Sean Young that he didn't like the performances between him and her in the scenes that they were in. But really, in this era of Alan's career, rewriting and reshooting half a film was part of doing business. 80 of the 139 scenes in the finished film were reshoots. What Alan changed it to was Cliff being a documentary maker who takes a job making a profile on his shallow TV producer brother-in-law, played by Alan Alder, and loses his love in Mia Farrow. Both were now in totally new roles. He's also making a documentary about a professor named Lewis Levy, who was played by real New York University professor Martin Bergman. Amazingly, Bergman improvised his own monologues. Now the unique thing that happened 
to the early Israelites was that they conceived a God that cares. He cares, but at the same time, he also demands that you behave morally. But here comes the paradox. What's one of the first things that that God asks? That God asks Abraham to sacrifice his only son, his beloved son, to him. In other words, in spite of millennia of efforts, we have not succeeded to create a really and entirely loving image of God. This was beyond our capacity to imagine. Cliff's story lacks the stakes of Judah's. There's no life and death on the line, but it does follow the theme. There's no meaning, only tragedy in Cliff's life. And through the wonderful Professor Levy, we get this incredible narrative about God and the meaning of life. I said earlier that Alan had said that he wished that the Judah story was the whole film. His view is probably coloured by the difficulty of making the Cliff story. And let's face it, he kind of made the Judah-only story in 2005 with Match Point. And the Judah moments are by far the most engaging parts of the film. Alan throws so much incredible writing and filmmaking skill into telling the story of Judah. The thing that gets me is how I'm never sure how much Judah is in control here. Whenever I watch the scene of him and his brother Jack, played by Jerry Orbach, first discuss the murder, I wonder if Judah is being let in or doing the leading. He often tells Jack that he can't even consider murder but he's the one who always brings it up again. Even Jack says at one point that Judah only calls him for things like this. Christ, Jack, why do you suggest? What did you call me for? I don't know. I I hoped you'd have more experience with something like this. You called me because you needed some dirty work done. That's all you ever call for. Look how bitty you are. You've staked me plenty of times. I don't forget my obligations. Threatening will only make it worse, Jack. Okay, forget about it. What do you want me to say? How the hell can I forget about it? I'm fighting for my life. This woman's going to destroy everything I've built. That's what I'm saying, Judah. If the woman won't listen to reason, then you go on to the next step. What, threats? Violence? What are we talking about here? She can be gotten rid of. I mean, I know a lot of people. Money will buy whatever's necessary. I'm not even going to comment on that. That's mind-boggling. Well, what did you want me to do when you called me? Not to do dirty work, despite what you think. Anyway, it's gone beyond just Miriam now. She's she's talking financial doings. I'm out of ideas. There's really not enough good things I can say about Judah. He's this sort of Igmar Bergman character with his white hair and his privileged veneer that only thinly hides his emotional panic. He's also very philosophical. Leading men in American films tend not to be so forthright with God and meaning. It's so much more Swedish. Another moment that kills me is more subtle. Angelica Houston plays Dolores, Judah's mistress and blackmailer. And at one point in an argument with Judah, she says that she won't let this happen to her again. I mean, I can't go on leaving too long. Yeah, well, you're not doing her any favor by pretending with her. I'm not going to be without you. I'm not going to let this happen to me without a fight. I want to speak to Miriam. I'm not going to let this happen to me again. Nothing is happening, all right? No. Yes. Now listen to me, please. Just bear with me. We'll work something out. It's just one word in a frantic scene, but we catch it and we see that this is the kind of person she is. She is easily led on and vulnerable. She's also bitter from past experience. Incredible character development with just one word. 
Alan's dramas to date had been very straightforward. The director, who played with time and linear narratives so well in Annie Hall or Zelig, seems to disappear when he puts on the drama hat. Here, he loosens up and adds a couple of incredible scenes of magical realism. One is using the character of Ben, a rabbi played by Sam Waterston, as a sort of conscience ghost, in a scene where Judah is otherwise alone. Could you really go through with it? choice do I have, man? Tell me. Give the people that you've heard a chance to forgive you. Miriam won't forgive me. She'll be broken. She worships me. She'll be humiliated before our friends. This woman plans to make us stink. Did you make promises to her? No. Maybe I let her on more than I realize she... She's so emotionally hungry. But it's deeper than just Miriam now. Meaning financial improprieties? No. Maybe I... Maybe I did make some questionable moves. Another is very Igmar Bergman-esque. Judah travels to his family home and actually steps into the past to discuss morality with his family. What are you saying, May? There's no morality anywhere in the whole world. Listen, for those who want morality, there's morality. Nothing's handed down in stone. Saul's kind of faith is a gift. It's like an ear for music or the talent to draw. He believes, and you can use logic on him all day long, and he still believes. Must everything be logical? And if a man commits a crime, if if he kills, then one way or another he will be punished. If he's caught, so. If he's not caught, that which originates from a black deed will blossom in a foul manner. Uh, you're relying a little too heavily on the Bible, so. No, 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 no. Whether it's the, uh, the Old Testament or Shakespeare, murder will out. Who said anything about murder? You did. And it's worth noting that the Judah storyline was not free from Alan's ruthless reshooting either. Judah's brother, Jack, was recast after another actor had filmed scenes and rewritten. He apparently played a bigger role when the film was initially envisaged as brothers. Whatever Alan originally envisaged, all the rewrites changed the film significantly and the title of brothers no longer fit. The characters of Sam Waterston's Ben and Alan Alder's Lester being brothers is only barely commented upon and has no bearing on the film. And far from being a dark drama, this film has many of Alan's characteristic one-liners, something very much missing from his last few films. I think I see a cab. If we run quickly, we can kick the crutch from that old lady and get it. By making this film two narratives, Alan achieves a much deeper range of emotions than just the Judah story. He overcomes the problem he had in dramas like The Recent September or Another Woman. Those films had a very restrictive palette, but there's no mopey Europeanness going on here. The Professor Levy character is especially poetic and when he dies, it gives the film an emotional wallop. It makes you want to cry. And that's not something that Alan has done much of up to this point. Cliff's journey is that he is desperate for meaning. He throws himself into making a documentary about Levy, who is such a hopeful person. But when he commits suicide, that hope snaps away. You will notice that what we are aiming at when we fall in love is a very strange paradox. The paradox consists of the fact that when we fall in love, we are seeking to refine all or some of the people to whom we were attached as children. On the other hand, we ask our beloved 
to correct all of the wrongs that these early parents or siblings inflicted on, upon us. So that love contains in it the contradiction, the attempt to return to the past and the attempt to undo the past. It also allows for Alan to craft some relatability into the story. Because Judah is so rich and privileged, it's hard for us to feel sorry for him. Cliff has better intentions, perhaps the best of intentions, so we like him. You think for Judah, but you feel for Cliff. In Cliff, we have someone to cling to in this film, but there's no happy ending for either men. Speaking of endings, the film's climax is one of Alan's best scenes. When Judah and Cliff sit down and talk about morality in fiction and happy endings, this was supposed to be a conversation between Judah and the blind rabbi, Ben. That would have been another very serious conversation between two characters we've seen interact before. Now, with Woody Allen's Cliff here, it's something else. Less serious, same conclusion. Allen is critical of his own acting range, but here you can see the spark of his intelligence wanting to take apart the problem and being oblivious to the man who is almost slipping into a confession. Through it all, the themes of the film are served on a platter. Here's what I would do. I would have him turn himself in because then you see, then your story assumes tragic proportions because in the absence of a god or something, he is forced to assume that responsibility himself. Then you have, then you have tragedy. But that's fiction. That, that's movies. I mean, I mean, you see too many movies. I mean, I'm talking about reality. I mean, if you want a happy ending, you, you should go see a Hollywood movie. <laughs> then there's the eyes. Alan weaves in this incredible symbolism throughout the film. Judah is an eye doctor. The characters don't see themselves for what they are. And there's the question of God and if anyone is watching over us. Alan throws in a blind rabbi who is the moral spine of the story, yet can't see a thing either. Alan dropped the title Brothers because there was a TV sitcom called Brothers. So he came up with many alternative titles, which he told to his biographer, Eric Lax. They include several that talk about eyes like The Eyes of God and Windows of the Soul. There were other big sounding titles like A Matter of Choice or Acts of Good and Evil. I that I should go to the doctor. Uh-huh. Because I was, you know, my eyes weren't so good. Well, you're an ophthalmologist. Uh-huh. Do you agree the eyes are the windows of the soul? Well, I believe there are windows, but I'm not sure it's a soul, I see. My mother taught me I have a soul, and it'll live on after me when I'm gone. And if you look deeply enough in my eyes, you can see it. High crimes and misdemeanours was considered and dismissed. Dropping the high in just crimes and misdemeanours was ultimately what Woody settled on. The final title also alluded to the influence of Fyodor Dostoevsky on the film. The Russian writer wrote big morality tales, including the similarly titled Crime and Punishment. Alan's approach to drama has been to dial down the music. It's true here where the score stays out of the way. Alan sticks to music used in the story diegetic music used in some of the films that Cliff watches with his niece or played at parties. The neat trick Alan uses for the spare score is to have different music for the two stories. Cliff's take is caught by jazz that is more closely associated with Alan, while Judah's story has rich, ominous classical music. What is great is how Alan plays around with contrast. After the scene where Judah speaks to some strange ghost of God betrayed by his rabbi friend Ben, we cut straight into Sweet Georgia Brown, which many people know as the music for the Harlem Globetrotters. Alan uses clips from old films to break up the bleakness. He uses bits from 40s films like This Gun for Hire and Mr. and Mrs. Smith 
which is supposed to be what Cliff sees at the cinema. The clips are always the burst of energy after a slow scene, again playing with contrasts. And all the clips subtly play on the scene that came before it, like the scene in This Gun for Hire, where two men are plotting a murder. Don't tell me. I don't want to know anything about it. This is a work of art. The ropes come off. I tie sash weights to her ankles with soft catgut. Please, that's a horrible word. Well, get the angle on this. She disappears. Two weeks, maybe three. And up she pops. None of this stuff on her anymore. No marks. A suicide. Oh, wasn't that beautiful? It's loathsome. You don't get much more juxtaposition than using Singing in the Rain in a film about murder and God. The music from that cheery film is actually used in the strange trailer. The cast is excellent. Alan at this point gave no care to box office draw and could get just about anyone. He preferred to work with people he knew and trusted. Mia, of course, was in every film around this time. Joanna Gleason and Sam Waterston also returned, having recently been in other Alan films. Angelica Houston is great as Dolores Paley. Houston comes from an acting dynasty that includes her dad, legendary director John Houston. She had earned acclaim for her role in her father's film Pritzi's Honor in 1985, but was not yet a household name. Houston reckons she was cast against type. She has said that if you were to read the role, you might assume that the mistress was some seductive blonde, probably not unlike Nora from Match Point, Alan's very similar film in 2005. She's great in the role and it kicked off an incredible 90s for Houston, where she starred in blockbusters like The Witches and The Addams Family, as well as working with Alan again in Manhattan Murder Mystery. Why did you phone me? I told you I'd call you. I couldn't help it. I was going out of my skin. I have to see you later. I have to. Okay. After work is okay. Alan Alder is great. He is best known for his role in M.A.S.H., which finished up in 1983 and had one of the most watched TV finales of all time. Alan notoriously doesn't pay very much, but people like Alder had earned a fortune in TV and could do whatever he wanted, and he wanted to work with Woody Allen. A lot of huge TV stars worked with Alan in these years. Alder's character of Lester was based on Larry Gelbart, comedy writer of films like Tootsie and the creator of M.A.S.H. Gelbart and Alan crossed paths in the 60s and both men had written for Sid Caesar. Gelbart has said that the older character in M.A.S.H. was an idealised version of himself. So he's older playing another version of Gelbart. Alan has said that Gelbart was the best comedy writer he has ever known. Older's role on paper seems a bit thankless. And Alan has created these male buffoon figures before and would again. Think of Michael Sheen in Midnight in Paris or Hugh Grant in Small Time Crooks. But Alder makes his character of Lester likeable. And we don't know if Cliff is right about him. Casting Alder gives a great dimension to the character. Because it's not easy to hate Alan Alder. Then what makes New York such a funny place is that there's so much tension and pain and misery and craziness here. And they got that's the first part of comedy. But see, you got to get some distance from it. You know what I mean? That the main, the thing to remember about comedy is if it's if it bends, it's funny. If it breaks, it's not funny. So you got to get back from the pain. You see what I mean? But the, the, uh, the like they said, they asked me up in uh, uh, at Harvard. A bunch of kids asked me, what, "What's comedy?" So I said, and then this this is part of what I'm trying to say about getting back from it. They, I, I said, "Comedy is tragedy plus time. Tragedy plus time." See when. The night Lincoln was shot, you couldn't joke about it. You couldn't make a joke about that. He just couldn't do it. Now time has gone by, and now it's fair game. See what I mean? It's tragedy plus time. Okay, we're out. 
But it's all Martin Landau. Landau had been working as an actor since the 50s in lots of TV roles. In 1988, he was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor for his work in Francis Ford Coppola's 1988 film, Tucker, Man and His Dream. In 1988, he was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor for his work in Francis Ford Coppola's film, Tucker, The Man and His Dream. Landau scored his second Oscar nomination with Crimes and Misdemeanors just a year later. In any conversation about the best male leads in an Allen film, Landau is up there. His performance is worth repeated visits. You can see the way he talks himself into evil and justifies his actions. It's a masterful, layered performance. At times confident and strong, at times Weasley and weak. And so much going on behind the eyes. Alan loved working with Landau. He would say that for some reason Landau just clicked with his dialogue. He would always deliver the lines as Alan envisaged. Alan would later learn that Landau grew up quite close to him and they shared a regional neighbourhood syntax. Landau's nomination didn't lead to a win, but he would finally win that Oscar in 1994 for his work in Ed Wood. For Christ's sake, Judy, you're having a breakdown. The police know she phoned me a lot. I lied, but I know they saw through it. I can't take this, Jack. This is not for me. If you don't pull yourself together, you're going to blow the whole thing. No, I didn't, and it's irrevocable, and now I'm going to pay. Jack, I had to fight an urge just to make a clean breast of it to the police. I want this off my mind. Listen to me, Judah. I'm in this with you. I helped you out, and I don't want to go to jail for it. Now, you get these ideas about confessing, and you may not care whether you drag me down with you, but I'm telling you right now, I'm not going to let that happen. Perhaps all that reshooting was easy because by the late 80s, Alan was settled with his team, most of whom had worked with him for over a decade. The names familiar in the credits to every Woody Allen fan, Robert Greenhut producing, Juliet Taylor in casting, Susan E. Morse in editing, Santa Laquasto doing the production design. Behind the camera is Sven Nykvist, the Swedish cinematographer favoured by Igmar Bergman. It's his second film with Alan, following on from Another Woman, released just a year earlier in 1988. Nykvist can do everything, but his specialty, what he's remembered for, is setting up these moody atmospheres and shooting actors as they make their way around the space. This film excels in some of the long moody scenes in Judah's story. Judah and Jack discussing murder at his house, or Judah and Ben discussing blackmail in his office. Can't you break it off? The woman won't allow it. She's young, she's very unstable, she's an hysteric and vindictive. And it's my fault. I instigated it. I prolonged it. Many times I tried to back off, but I was too weak. But I promised her nothing. But did I? See, I don't even know anymore. In the heat of passion, you say things. All I know is after two years of shameful deceit where I let this double life, I awakened as if from a dream and realized what I'd be losing. Crimes and Misdemeanors was released by Orion Pictures on the 13th of October, 1989. This was his ninth film for Orion, who was very protective of Alan. He hadn't had a big hit since Hannah and her sisters, and the next couple would be significant flops. Orion would also go bankrupt in the next couple of years. Still, this film was pretty successful for Alan. It would be his most successful film in the 80s after Hannah and her sisters. And of course... It was loved by critics and swept its share of awards for its cast. Alan himself was nominated for Best Director and Best Screenplay at that year's Academy Awards. For me, this film is great. One of the upper echelons of Woody Allen's work. Alan seems to be overflowing with ideas for this film. Rich characters, a lot to say, and some incredible filmmaking flair all comes together. And for the first time, he's made a drama that matches the energy of his comedies, which are often overflowing with ideas as well. 
Then there are the details. Alan has talked often about trying to construct a film that has the level of detail of a novel. It's a big obsession for him in the 80s, and this works better than most. Alan layers on the themes, subtext and symbolism into every frame. He uses contrast to make emotional points. The dialogue is top-notch, and it helps that his cast is incredible, as is his crew. Interestingly, in 2012, UK Sight and Sound magazine polled hundreds of directors for their favourite films, and the highest-ranking Woody Allen film was a tie between Crimes and Misdemeanors and Manhattan. Both beat Annie Hall. So Crimes and Misdemeanors is one of Woody Allen's best, and of that pool of the best films, it's by far Allen's most serious. It will take him another decade and a half, but Allen would start to finally make serious intense dramas in the 2000s but I'm still not sure any of those top this one. There are some fine films in his very serious work to come, but here he's casually serious, talking about God and justice with wit and flair. But we must always remember that we, when we are born, we need a great deal of love in order to to persuade us to stay in life. Once we get that love, it usually lasts us. But the universe is a pretty cold place. It's we who invest it with our feelings. And under certain conditions, we feel that the thing isn't worth it anymore. Here's a couple of fun facts about crimes and misdemeanors. Jenny Nichols plays Cliff's niece, who he takes to see films. She is the least accomplished actor to get named billing on a Woody Allen film. She's the daughter of director Mike Nichols, who shared a manager with Woody. She only appeared in two other films, as an extra in Ragtime eight years earlier, and a small part in New York Stories, also in 1989, and also involved Alan. She just didn't pursue acting at all after this film. Which is funny, because one of her lines in the film is saying that she wants to grow up to be an actress. I think maybe when I'm older I want to be an actress. I don't want you to be an actress. I want you to be on the Supreme Court or a doctor or something. You know, show business is is dog-eat-dog. It's worse than dog-eat-dog. It's it's dog doesn't return other dogs' phone calls, you know, which is terrible. Jerry Orbach replaced Stephen Hill in the role of Jack, and the two would later star together for many years on Law & Order alongside Sam Waterston. Waterston appeared in 368 episodes, Orbach for 274 episodes, and Hill for 229 episodes. Other Law & Order stars that have worked with Alan include Carolyn McCormack, Diane Wiest, and J.K. Simmons. Professor Levy was originally a character for the film that would be Annie Hall, but actually ties into Manhattan murder mystery. We'll get around to those two films, but Annie Hall started as a murder mystery, with a Professor Levy committing suicide. But our heroes know better because they knew that he was an optimist, and so they start investigating. Thanks for listening to this first episode of the Woody Allen Pages podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. We'd love your feedback, so you can send us an email at woodyallenpages at gmail.com. You can also support us on Patreon, and you can find out more about how you can do that with links in the description. You can also find links to buy books or posters from the artwork of this podcast. The books are called the Woody Allen Film Guides, and they have minute-by-minute breakdowns of every single Woody Allen film, telling you about the locations, the music, the cameos, the references, and so much more. Of course, there's the website for all the latest Woody Allen news. Check out WoodyAllenPages.com. And we're on social media at Woody Allen Pages pretty much everywhere. A no-cost way of helping us out is to leave us a review where you found this podcast. Five stars will do, or tell a friend. 
Any support would be great. Next week, we look at a Woody Allen film that I love, but most people seem to disagree with me. Thanks for listening. If, it's, if it bends, it's funny. If it breaks, it's not funny. See,